This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananman, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, bro. Wait a minute, that doesn't work. <laughs> the author of the novel Good Lieutenant. Hang on. Why are we using the term bro? Well, I've been waiting three seasons to call you a bro, but no, I'm kidding. Um, This is our modern myth-making episode, and I needed the best word to announce it, so I thought I'd borrow from the already famous opening line of my friend Maria Devana Headley's new translation of Beowulf. Bro, tell me we still know how to speak of kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were. Brave, bold, glory-bound. Only stories now, but I'll sound the Spearedane's song, Hoarded for Hungry Times. (laughs) Just, do you think, have you read the, been reading the things about how your, your guys should not be used uh, like for multi, for, for all, it shouldn't be used for men and women? Have you been reading about that? It shouldn't or it should? I've read, there's an article in the Atlantic saying that it shouldn't be used as a, as a gender neutral term. It, it, it should only be used with guys. I wonder if bro is, the, is, is, can bro be gender neutral or is bro only guys? I think bro is guys, historically. All right. Now that now we now that we're going to get a ton of bad of email about that, <laughs> we just wanted to get that out there and say whatever stupid thing I could say about that. I want to move on to hungry times, which will be less controversial because these are hungry times that we're living in. And today we're talking about Beowulf and modern myth making, which we're doing a lot of myth making right now, in my personal opinion. Um, a story of this election is already a myth, and since we're taping on Halloween. That election has not even happened yet. Well, I mean, I can't think of anyone better to ride that out with, given the circumstances, than Maria. She's an acclaimed novelist whose most recent book is this Bravura translation, and we're thrilled to have her join us today. Maria Devana Headley is the number one New York Times bestselling author and editor. Her books include the novels The Mere Wife, Magonia, Airy, Queen of Kings, and the memoir The Year of Yes. With Kat Howard, she is author of The End of the Sentence, And with Neil Gaiman, she is co-editor of Unnatural Creatures. Her short stories have been shortlisted for the Shirley Jackson Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. She was raised with a wolf and a pack of sled dogs in the high desert of rural Idaho and now lives in Brooklyn. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's great to have you with us. And as you know, uh, like many English majors, I've spent time with other translations of this poem, which was written a thousand years ago and has been assigned probably to every college English major since. Um, but for those who might not be familiar with or remember the poem, could you give us your kind of last minute cram before the exam version of the plot? (laughs) Yes, I luckily have done this many times because it's kind of a complicated poem, but the plot isn't very complicated. It's a monster named Grendel attacks a new mead hall, which is like the fanciest, most glorious mead hall where all of these guys who are Danes are partying. And... Grendel cannot stand the noise. He comes in and kills a bunch of people. And he does that every night for 12 years, and they don't move. And 12 years into this problem, a guy named Beowulf, who is the hero, quote, unquote, of the story, um, learns about this and comes to Denmark to attempt to kill their monster, to save them, and also to prove his own prowess. So he does. He kills the Grendel. He gets big rewards from Hrothgar the king. And then that night, Grendel's mother comes and takes one of the uh, one of the warriors as vengeance, one of the king's best guys. So, so Beowulf goes in and he does another killing. He comes into Grendel's mother's house under the water or her hall, whatever it is, it's a hall, um, and kills her. Gets gold, gets rewards, but this is a little bit against the rules of Old English and Anglo-Saxon society. So it's a problem. And then 50 years pass. We jump into the future and a dragon comes to Beowulf's kingdom, which is Gatland, which is like contemporary Sweden. And the dragon is incensed by someone stealing a cup from the dragon's den. And the dragon is mad and goes on a big rampage. And Beowulf by then is an old man and he decides to go and fight the dragon alone. He kills the dragon. The dragon kills him. They kill each other. And that's the end of the Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a big, bloody, three-battle epic poem. It's 3,000 lines of intense battles, but also lots of recaps of events for, like, a multi-night Mead Hall audience. Your 2018 novel, The Mere Wife, was uh, also modernized Beowulf and portrayed Grendel's mother as a war veteran, Dana Mills, who gives birth to Grendel following her rape. Here, once more, your portrayal of Grendel's mother is a feminist one. 
and your version underlines the character's humanity rather than making her just a monster. What was it like for you to move from the Dana Mills version of this character to the one from the translation itself? It was a really interesting experience. I had, I'd been working on the novel for several years and I had been inspired in part by the 2016 election and the ways in which um, white women had voted for Trump against their own better understanding of what it is to be a woman in this society, I think. And so I was interested in looking at the women of the Beowulf story and looking at the ways in which neighbors are monsterized in order to keep the same group of people in power over and over again. Um, the Dana Mills character is the Grendel's mother character in that. She's a war veteran. She's a soldier. And I had gone into great, I'd gone to great lengths to really get into her head and see what kind of person would in the story hide from larger society. It's a, it's a story about class. It's a story about race. It's a story about, um, ongoing discomfort at both ends of the spectrum. And in the translation, which is really a translation, it's I translated every line of the Beowulf poem. I didn't um, go afield, although the style is... <laughs> you didn't cheat on the translation? I didn't like... cheat. The style is, <laughs> is far afield from what the original would be, but the content is not. Um, so it was a very, it was actually a really interesting experience. The Grendel's mother character is only, her big battle is only about 100 lines of the 3,000. And it is, it's pretty short. It's brutal and she is really fierce yeah i'm the prose in that part and the way that you translated it when she's like he, she's grabbing onto him and leading him through the hall and you have that sense of all these sea monsters coming around and biting at him and he's looking at the walls and the way it's described is really amazing i thought it's a pretty amazing sequence in the original it's like um beowulf you have to remember is he's about 18 years old he's just a kid and grendel's mother has been the queen of her own domain for 50 years so she's like Hrothgar. She's an old woman and she is so ferocious that he almost dies. Like, and he's this major warrior. He's so hardcore. Everyone thinks he is. He can slay 30 guys with one blow, basically. He's like a fairy tale character. But Grendel's mother is his equal. And she on the only reason he wins is that God shines a light on a sword and helps him. So it's uh yeah, it's an interesting state of affairs, the story. The story in Mirwife is very I departed, but but in the uh in the poem it's it's a battle of equals. It's a, and it's a battle of desperation. It becomes a really desperate, agonized battle for her, and she dies, but she dies with honor. And in the original, she dies with honor. She she is kind of lauded by the poet, even though she's one of the villains of the poem. So, as I think about the feminism in your work generally, and then also in this translation specifically, I can't help but think about how the stories of women have played out against our recent stories of so-called kings, would-be kings. Um, you know, that Access Hollywood tape came out, um, or I guess was leaked, you know, at this point about four years ago. And yesterday, the thing that was kind of like going viral, um, my partner played this for me this morning, Helen Mirren as Billy Bush and Sarah Cooper as Trump basically redoing the Access Hollywood tape. Um, and so you can hear, you know, Sarah Cooper repeating this Donald Trump mythologizing himself, talking about himself as this this myth of a man who can get away with anything, you know, I'm a star, I can Wait, do Wait, are you going to say the Access Hollywood tape is like Beowulf? I love that idea. That's <laughs> fantastic. Um, it's possible we're stretching slightly, but, um, you know, in your introduction to this book, which is um, also a huge pleasure to read, you, you talk about reciting lines of Beowulf to yourself while watching the news. Um, and I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about how the shit-talking masculinity of the heroes of old could help us understand our current so-called leaders. Yeah, it's um, when I first thought of doing this translation, I knew that I was going to use as the first word, which is what, which is a word that is a kind of mystery definition, but the first word of the Beowulf poem, what. And it's, an, it's a sort of like, give me the floor, give me the floor. But I always felt like the Beowulf story was such a bro story. It's a story about bragging and about, about saying, my guy did this and I did this and it was amazing and I fucking saw it, I was there. And so the, po the poem, in this case, I think supports the ongoing growth of masculine mythology. We've been reading this poem for about 200 years in English translation. And it's, even if you don't know the poem, even if you haven't read it, you have heard bits of it because it's incorporated itself into our society. So the ways that we talk about heroes and monsters in our contemporary American society are really similar to the ways that they're talked about in the poem. And that's for a reason. That's because the poem is taught in high school you know, it's it's just influential in that regard. So I think about the ways in which we 
uh, societally talk about masculinity as a heroic trait, and we talk about tradition as a, as a justification and as a heroic justification. We've always done it this way. We've always killed monsters in order to become heroes. So I think about the toxicity of what we have ended up with, which is, uh-oh, there aren't any monsters. I guess we'll have to make some monsters really fast. We'll make some monsters out of our neighbors because otherwise we can't achieve peak masculine heroics in as a normal person in society, unless you're like actually a warrior and you're, you know, maybe you are, maybe you're, maybe you're a soldier, but if you're not, and even in that case, there are problems consistently, problems with heroics, problems with wrong enemy, problems with not guilty enemy, and you're sent over to do whatever it is. Um, but in our basic, like, propagandized society, getting a heroic designation on yourself, as Trump has all, always sought to do, he wants to be heroic. Um, and he talks about himself using the language of the hero, which is time-honored, <laughs> the language of, I can do something more, I am mightier than any other man, I am bigger than any other man, I'm stronger, I'm more, I'm healthier, I'm impervious to disease, like, all of these are things that actually Beowulf says about himself, as do most of the other heroes who are all liars. In the Odyssey, Odysseus says things like this about himself. And even in the story, you can see that that isn't true. Like that things are happening to him that would be very different from the mythology that he is spouting consistently. But it's, um, yeah, it's a tendency, it's a trope, it's something that has kind of infiltrated our society and our ways of talking about power. Rather than saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a hero, I'm just kind of an ordinary person, which is actually something that the Democrats consistently try to say. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to use that language and make people feel passionate. But if you use heroic, monster-defeating language, people feel passionate because they've been trained to feel passionate about that kind of language. So fascinating. And I mean, look, the, the whole idea behind our show is that Everything that you see in the news has already been written about in literature. And here you are, you know, in, in your translation and the way that you talk about Beowulf, making this case that is, seems totally true to me. Yeah, you know, and like it's so clear how those tropes have have animated our society. Even if you look at movies, I mean, every Marvel movie and Star Wars, it's the same sort of deal. Right. Um, and so anyway, I, I just I love that point and I and I can't I think it can't be emphasized enough. Um, speaking of shit talking, which is a segue I've always wanted to make, I wonder if I could ask you to read from one of my favorite sections um, in your translation where Beowulf responds to a challenge and does some of this boasting that we're talking about. Yes. Beowulf has arrived at Hurat Hall. He's a, he's like a newcomer, no one really knows what his cred is. And he needs to prove it. And within Hrothgar's court, he finds a guy named Unferth, who is the right hand to the king. And Unferth is like, no, 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 no. You're not going to come in here and be a hero. I'm already here. Meanwhile, though, Unferth has not actually killed Grendel. And he's been there for 12 years failing to kill Grendel. So Beowulf has a problem. Unferth has a problem with Beowulf. Beowulf has a problem with Unferth. And it turns into this kind of bro battle, which I emphasized in this translation. Near Hrothgar's feet squatted Unferth, Eglaf's son, unconvinced, whispering churlish words. Beowulf's bravado bristled him and envy ate him alive. He'd historically been glorious, and the notion that another more notorious under heaven might enjoy greater greatness made him gnash. Bro, do you happen to be the Beowulf who challenged Brekka in the open ocean, insisting you should swim in shark seas for no reason but to prove your petty prowess? boasting that no boat should guard your lives, but that you should risk them recklessly. I heard no one could convince you two of clarity, that you dove overboard, surfing on stupidity, swearing you knew the currents better than any other, and that you, swole as a troll fed on travelers, were superior to any swell. You lolled for seven nights in wintry waters, and in the end he outswam your fool self, skipped ashore unscathed, though uncertain, and rolled on to land safely in the land of the heathal reams. From there he went to his home country, where the Brandings adored him, a calm and pleasant place, and returned to his hall, his host. His boyish boast was proven that, yes, he'd bested Beowulf. No matter your other battles, the tales you told, the lines you sold, buddy, at least you lived. This time, bro, know it. No one's ever lasted a night clasped in Grendel's arms. Beowulf, Edgethouse's son, wasn't phased. 
Well, actually, buddy, sit down, you're drunk. Unfirth, you've run your mouth about Brecca, me, and our sea swagger, but let me drop some truth into your tangent. I've been better on the water, deeper in the drink, and stronger in the swim than any man alive. Brecca and I were boys together. Our desires were only dares, one upon the other, brother to brother. Maybe you know this story? But hold up, I forgot. You've got no brothers left. We declared ourselves adventurers, and so we swam, swords in hands for safety, unsheathed, father forged. We knew there were sharks. No one here is stupid. He couldn't float freer or swim straighter than I, and I had no urge to leave him or lose the lesser swimmer. I was Brecca's lifeguard. I knew my duty. The rains rocked us and storms shook us, and for five nights we floated, warring against winds from the north, the waves like blades bone cold, until at last we were blown apart, the biting beasts of the bottom roiling up to ring me, wrestling me to the seafloor. All that held me was my armor, clasped hands made of gold, chainmail, gainsaying waves and wet, the work of ancestors forging my ferocity. It kept me bold enough to fight when a monster dragged me down and gripped me, ripping at my skin. I was pinned, swaddling, swaddled in squalor. Last chance, I took it. I put that monster down. I made it a sleeper as it leapt, severed its spine, spiked its skull, and split it into smithereens. My own strength sank that sea monster, and soon I was fighting again, lower than any human sight outside even the edges of God's light. Dark deeps hell's creatures in them, swinging my sword beneath the eyes of the world. I would not be eaten, nor beaten, no skewered swimmer I, no drowned dinner for a circle of cold companions gobbling my guts, glutted on my gold. At dawn, I surfaced in a slurry of scales, floating flotsam where formerly there'd been fangs. I'd sacrificed myself to save every subsequent seafarer from deep despair, and the monsters of the dark were gone. The east was gilded with God, and the sea was smooth. I could see the shore, the strong cliffs rising, built of their own bruises. If a man's brave enough, Fate, when on the fence, will often spare him. I'd never brag, but the truth is my sword slew nine singular scavengers that night. There are no ocean-goring stories more awful than mine, no tales of greater terror, no other man so sea-stalked. But I survived. My salvation in my own hands. The waves bore me shoreward, attending me, and left me, at long last, in the land of the Finns. The End. I've racked my brain, bro, but Unfurth, I can't unpack any similar stories of heroics from you. Let me say it straight. You don't rate, and neither did Brecca when it came to battle. The gulf? You're cattle, and I'm a wolf. I'm not even mentioning your sins, your kin killing, your brother beating. I'm not the man to damn you. No shit, though, Unferth, if you were the bitter, brawling brave you claim to be, your king wouldn't have suffered a single night of Grendel's rampage. No bitten bones, no hall horror, no chaos in his kingdom. Grendel was aware he had nothing to fear here. Your sword's soft, son. No warrior awaited him in Hurret. The shieldings were unshielded, their hall unguarded. He knew he could crush you, comfort himself with grappling, grind your bones to make his bread. He's got no fear of Beer Hall brothers, but this you can quote. He'll fear me. There are no guns of note on anyone but me and my gaets. Come on, Eglef's son, beat me. Or better yet, make me a bet that Grendel's maker won't be met. Then, if you brave boys feel like drinking, I'll serve you ale for breakfast. The sun shining on silver and gold, daylight yours after night's been mine. Ah, so good. <laughs> Your sword's soft, son. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the nature of the original. <laughs> uh, he does a Trumpian thing where he's like, "Well, I'm not going to say that you did all these bad things, but I, I am actually." But no, I'm not going. I wouldn't be a guy. Who would I would say never. That. I would never. That's like a Trump rally. <laughs> it does. He. I mean, and to be fair, this was was of course inspired by the rhetoric that we've been listening to for the last four years. If you're like 
most Americans. But if you were a New Yorker, you were listening to this long before that. And if you were seeing him on TV, you were listening to it as well. You know, I remember um, Ruth Franklin in The New Yorker, I think, compared this trash talking to Omar Little um, in The Wire, um, which I'm also in the middle of watching right now. And oh, that, so good. That comparison was so apt. I was like, Beowulf all but whistles farmer in the dell as he appears on the scene. Beowulf's coming! Beowulf's coming! <laughs> um, and I was really struck by the line, he'd historically been glorious, and the notion that another more notorious under heaven might enjoy greater greatness made him gnash. <laughs> And so Unforth there seems like totally Trumpian as well. You know, I was kind of thinking of, I was sort of wondering, you know, who is the best um, sparring partner for Trump on Twitter? And I think maybe I would nominate George Conway or, or maybe Walter Schaub, those those guys trading tweets with him. And then Beowulf seeks to declare himself by announcing his own prowess. And when you thought about bringing that kind of um, myth-making within the longer myth of the poem to life in modern English, what rhetorical qualities did you want to bring out? There are so many different things in this poem in terms of the way men talk about themselves and in terms of the way the narrator talks about the men who are talking about themselves. So I was working on bringing out in this section, especially the, the sort of self-mythologizing of people like Trump or just really any guy who wants to win. He he makes the case that he has already won before he wins. So he's like, of course I would win. God chose me. I'm the man. Like, I don't, I don't know what you would be thinking to even try to fight against me. Don't try. Don't try it. And I was working on using that kind of, um, you know, gigantic myth-making and persuasion. And throughout the poem, guys have second thoughts. Like, there are several sequences where sometimes a bard will just break in and sing a little bad song and it isn't a moment of celebration, but the bard is like, here's a terrible thing that happened once to a guy like you, but sings it like it's flattering. And other translators have sometimes been like, whatever that got stuffed in by another, another person, there was a gap in the page count. I don't know. They had to stick something in there, but I think they're all really related. It's like there, there's constant commentary that if you continue to shake your dick it's eventually going to fall off. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's the point often of the bards. The bards are like, it's going to go badly. It's going to go badly. It's going to go badly. And then four pages later, it does go badly. And you see catastrophic events. There's just a whole bunch of I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man, which is why I did it as, as the bro version of this. But, uh, but I'm the man is, is a longstanding kind of phrase that, that people have used. Even, even as a woman, there's a Brothgar's wife at one point thinks about Beowulf and she's he's bragging, he's bragging, he's bragging. And she's convinced she's like, well, I guess he has brass balls, if nothing else. He didn't have anything else, but he has brass balls. And, you know, even as a woman, when people say you have balls, it means you're the man, which is um, really questionable. But a long tradition of the questionable phrasing and the questionable gendered um, inflation. I mean, it's also true that. Trash talking can be fun if you're playing gin rummy with your grandmother. Mm -hmm. I used to trash talk my grandmother and she would trash talk me when we played gin rummy. You know, it's like, I, there's no way you're going to win this. You know, you're going to lose, right? I mean, that that part is, there's a part of that that's human and fun and that and that we all sort of enjoy, I think. Yeah, it's funny because in, in our normal daily lives, we kind of know that trash talking is bullshit. We know that it's, we and it's funny, it's comedic. But yeah, when it's the president doing that kind of trash talking all day long, the president and and more people than that, Mitch McConnell does it all the time too. And he doesn't know it's funny he, or he doesn't, you know, like when we did it, we were laughing at ourselves at the same time. It's about delivery and tone, I think. Yeah, he has no sense of humor about himself. Whereas I think, not that Beowulf necessarily has a sense of humor about himself, but the narrator has a sense of humor about Beowulf. So it's, uh, so there's a, a layer of perspective, but I think as a sort of, Society, we've kind of lost that layer, which is a weird thing. The layer of like excessive, flamboyant, performative braggadocio has now, now seems like normal behavior. Well, there is a balancing phrase in your translation, which comes a refrain that comes up is like, that was a good king. And that is generally said about, I think, kings that were in fact good. Uh, and they're sort of like, it seems like it's the narrative voice. Now, maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's said ironically. And if so, tell me that that's how it works. But what is it, you know? How does someone like Obama had a very different way of, of getting people to praise him. Right. And Trump says, I praises himself. Obama wants other people to praise him. He's sort of more humble. But but in the end, it's the actions, I guess. Right. Is that what establishes what a good thing is? Or is it about your rhetoric? 
Well, in the case of in this poem, it's your actions. It, the, the that was a good king always takes place. We hear that phrase always after a recounting of a king's deeds of what he did and what the kings do who are good kings in this in this poem. And really, I mean, we could apply this to our world as well. In this poem, it's like he shared the wealth. He gave out the money. He gave rewards to the people who deserved them and to the people who worked, to the people who worked hard for him. He he never hoarded it. And, and the discussions of that was a bad king are he held everything tightly. He clutched it. He would not share. He would not give anyone else credit. And there's a king that's discussed very explicitly that way named Haramod in the text of this poem, um, who is like the worst bad king and everyone hates him. And by the time he dies, he's hated by the entire world. Um, mainly because he's a goblinish hoarder and he grabs up all of the money, all of the wealth, hoards it to himself and just sits in it. Um, but in terms of, of that was a good king and, and our contemporary political situation, yeah, it's deeds. And um, I think that Obama had the ability, whether created, um, whether just innate, part of his own set of skills, or part of the only way that he could maintain power without looking to be aggressive, which would have created a spectacular American drama of, and it was already in the mix, the mix of the sort of wild racism of American society, to be an aggressive Black man is a problem. So he just didn't use that tactic. He was like, Look at look at my beautiful speeches. They're so beautiful. And here's what I'm doing. I'm doing this thing. I'm doing this thing. I'm doing this thing. But he was just never a screamer because I think that being a screamer would have created uh, an instant knee jerk American mess response, which, uh, you know, Trump can do it. He's a white man. He can scream. Well, this reminds me a little bit of like, do you do you remember either of you remember when Howard Dean had that kind of famous scream that sank him? We've been thinking about that all the time lately. His yop. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the barbaric yop of, of, of Howard <laughs> Dean. Um, it's interesting also to think about the self-mythologizing as like a way of seizing power. And yet there's a, t a whole other set of people, right? I can think of people who I've encouraged to self-mythologize because I'm trying to give them a pep talk, right? And there's something about this election and this episode, you know, we are taping it before the election and it will air after, although I don't know that we will know our results but right, you know, people are sort of trying to make a mythical forecast of, um, you know, and people are, you know, commentators are encouraging people to think about um, how we're being manipulated, not only by, say, um, you know, foreign actors, but also, right, if, if the story and the myth that goes out about this election before it is done is that democracy is not going to work. Like, to what extent is that a self-fulfilling prophecy? But then on the other hand, also, how do you prepare yourself for whatever is on the other side of this, like, backwards, this looking glass that we're going to be on the other side of? You know, how do you, how do you prepare yourself without discouraging yourself? And what, what role does myth have in that? I think I'm really struggling with this as I read the news. I'm like, I really want to be ready. And also, I really don't want to be depressed. <laughs> I feel that I um I grew up in like survivalist Idaho so my whole childhood was the sort of planning for the catastrophic demise of everything and interestingly by plague it was like my family text was a text called Earth Abides which is a novel from the late 50s about a measles plague that takes everybody down leaving just a few people who are not the people you would necessarily want to rebuild civilization they're just the guys that lived um and I you know, I thought I was prepared for a scenario. I thought I had been prepared for the last four years. And certainly I've been translating Beowulf for, and working with Beowulf, working with a text about the demise of a civilization and of several civilizations, ultimately. At the end of the poem, there's um, Beowulf dies and there's a lament. One of, the, one of the most famous, though very short bits of the poem is a lament by a woman at his funeral who's one of his citizens. And she's just called the Gaetish woman. And she just screams. She sings a scream song saying, everyone is going to come now. And if, in my translation, it's everyone, they're going to come, they're going to rape, they're going to reap, they're going to, they're going to come for us. They're all of the reasons that everyone else hates us are going to bear fruit now, now that the king is dead, who was theoretically defending us. Um, and, you know, I mean, thinking about that, thinking about that, that knowledge a thousand plus years ago, this poem is set in like the sixth century. So it's 
Um, it's a longstanding human situation where your comforts are always at risk. And it's also a situation that causes us to behave badly. The idea that our comforts are always at risk often makes us hoarders. And that's like a big part of what the poem is about. And it's certainly part of what our current state of affairs is about. This feeling of like, how do you get safe when you're not in charge? You're not in charge of like the three of us sitting here on this podcast are not in charge of America. <laughs> and um, we just have to vote and wait and see what happens. And then we'll really see what happens. Like to be prepared for something catastrophic is, I think, I think no one is ever prepared for something catastrophic. I have I have a variety of friends over the past four years who've been like circulating Google Docs and you know, I'm sure we've all seen them, the how to be prepared for the catastrophic event that ends America docs. And um I read them and I'm like, I can't, I can't look at this. Um I can't make a stockpile, I can't hoard guns, I I you know, part of me is like, well, this has happened before and many people lived and many people died and I don't necessarily get to choose which category I'm going to be in. And I can choose whether or not I fight if that happens. But that's um, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think most people would fight for their lives, but I think a lot of people would also fight for a non-dictator-led society. So we shall see. I mean, every finger is crossed, I think, for all of us. And if you've been studying the ancient world and classical world and like a thousand years of poetry, you're like, well, some people lived centuries on and they wrote the poems. So like, is this the end of everything? No, there's still beauty and literature in the world after all of these events. And we're speaking in this sort of way about the election because we're recording this on the Saturday before the election, actually on Halloween. We don't know what's going to happen. This will come out on the Thursday after the election. We still may not know what's going to happen then, but that's that's what we're talking about today. But I wanted to go back to that original point that you were talking about, um, about the way that this poem, this poem has been influential on the way people think. And I also think that it, you know, I wrote up, my last novel was a novel set in Iraq, so it was about war. And I was very concerned with not repeating certain myths that I think are made about war, like, for instance, that you become a man through conflict, that, that, that the conflict is the thing that makes you a man. One of the things I did to make sure that that didn't happen was make my main character a woman, right? So, you know, you, but you have, here's a war, here's a war mythologizing poem, right? That, uh, and so what do you think, how do you, in your way of translating, try to work against or against the grain of like just mythologizing, like, yes, war is great. War is fantastic. You know, that sort of, parts of the poem that are that sort of mythologize and, and make war seem grand? Well, it's interesting, actually. Like, the poem has, I think, a lot of gray area between grandeur and doom. So there's this recap of the big battle, multi-years of battle that happened. And there's a long discussion of a king called Angenthau, who is an old man when he's attacked by Higelac, who's the mentor to Beowulf. And Ultimately, Hegelak wins, but the old man is so brave. He is the enemy, but he's, he's strong, he's tough. And the reason he's brave, the reason the poem thinks he's brave is that he constantly protects his people. He dies for them. I, I brought that out in the poem because he's an old man who's learned the lessons of the poem. He's, a, he's someone who, he's not like Beowulf is in the beginning of the poem where Beowulf is like, I'm just going to kill it with my muscles. He's like, this is the time that you fight and you die for your people. You don't sit in your throne. And so I think that like in terms of this sort of mythologizing of war culture, which is something I'm really concerned with and interested in both. I mean, we, we have a deep war culture, but we have also a very deep understanding of ourselves in America anyway, as people who are heroic for crushing down people who don't have as much as we do <laughs> within our own country. Like we are like, here, we'll go to war, we'll not call it war, but we will go to war against black America as white American men. That's who, that's who we're warring against. We'll put them all in prison, we'll crush them down. And the idea that that's heroic is something that I think needs to be constantly battled against. The, the idea that you shrink someone's resources down until they have nothing to fight with, and then you kill them and you're still the hero, is something that's so pervasive in the sort of mythology of America, and also I'm not even to talk about 
the beginnings of the country with First Nations people, like same thing. Um, take all their resources, then kill them. Now you're a monster killing hero. Um, so I think that like in the poem, I really tried to make clear that the monster killing is in quotes, that you're not actually killing monsters, you're killing your neighbors. And your neighbors are, are maybe not living in a hall, so you've decided that they aren't human. But uh, they, and maybe that's because you took their hall. <laughs> um, I was I was interested in making sure that all of those elements are clear because I think they're actually really in the poem. And a lot of translators coming out of colonialist impulses, we're talking about like Victorian British translators coming out of the Victorian era, coming up in school, and I'm talking about Tolkien here, um, but also a whole bunch of them. There's like the whole sort of taught translation cycle is guys going. Obviously, it makes sense that you kill the, quote, monsters. Yeah, and you point out, I think in the introduction, like all the bad ways that uh, Grendel's mother is referred to, like all the very negative language that previous translations have used for her and that you have tried to make her seem less the other, right? Is that sort of part, is that what you're talking about here? That's true, yes. The Grendel's mother character in the poem is um, not referred to as a monster. She's in the original Old English, the words for her are not monster. And the word that is used for her is the same word that is used for Beowulf and for Grendel and for the dragon. So it's a word that means probably formidable rather than um, monster or hero. But in the uh, sort of early dictionaries, the dictionaries of the 1920s, which are standard and were used to influence scholarship all the way through, um, it was just sort of accepted that if you, if you saw that word and it referred to Beowulf, it meant hero. And if you saw it and it referred to Grendel's mother, it meant monster. And uh, even more than monster, it meant monster hag or monster witch or monster ugly thing female. So much of it is the lens of the story, right? Who's telling the story and who is looking from a distance at it. And in this case, I had the luxury with this poem of a narrator who's looking at the events from a distance. And uh, that is, it's interesting. I mean, I wish for the luxury of perspective on America. The other day, I, I, my, my voter registration had not arrived and I was freaking out. And I discovered that my birth date had been put in, it had been inputted as occurring in 2977. So I, I was a time traveler. And so I got removed from the, um, from the voter registration. And that was... I mean, it was interesting to imagine it for a moment. I was like, oh, what if I was from 2977 looking at this election, you know, coming back to vote in this election to try to fix it and being able to see it with the perspective of, oh, they didn't realize that they were either, you know, worshiping the wrong idol in this case. Um, I think we can see that from here. But in the case of, um, of the political situation, man, it would be nice to have a thousand years perspective and have a look and see what, what this this last few years, and indeed what the existence of America has wrought. So we've previously had Madeline Miller on the podcast uh, to talk about her novel, Circe, which is a feminist take on that character from myth. And until her plane was horrifically delayed by snow, we were going to talk to Emily Wilson on that same show. Um, and of course, she's famous for her 2017 translation of The Odyssey. I know you um, have been in conversation with both of them. And I don't normally think of Circe or Beowulf as being bestseller material, but all of these books, including yours, have been huge hits. Um, has the mass market appetite for these stories always been there, or is, do you think of this as something new? I think that the mass market appetite for a lens through which to view our own lives has always been there. It's always, and it, and it occurs in different kinds of genres. Like, it's not just in the epic poem arena. But we have... Um, as a result of, of school systems, but also as a result of like early pleasure reading. I feel like lots of people encountered myths in like eighth grade when they were like 12 and they thought, whoa, I can read about monsters and goddesses and heroes. And like, it's so, and it's also kind of sexy and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens that I can slip under the radar. And it's all kinds of people who would not necessarily normally be allowed to read that depending on what kind of community they're from. These are books that would be banned. And I think that in the case of Beowulf, this is definitely a story that would be banned if it was a contemporary um, young adult novel. There's a lot that occurs in there that's really questionable, although we have a bigger um, home in our hearts as Americans for violence than we do for for sort of non or non-heteronormative sex, I guess. But in um, but yeah, I think that we have always had an appetite for 
what do humans do? I mean, that's, we are all lost creatures. We're all wondering, how do you react to the chaotic events of, of living in a civilization that you're not in charge of? And even people who are in charge of the civilization generally are familiar with these texts and are often either riffing off of them or learning from them as they go along. Like these are the kinds of books that you see on the shelves behind the guys in charge pretty regularly. And I, I won't lie. And I mean, you know, one of my goals here with using doing a translation of Beowulf was to get into the sort of canonical structure of assigned reading in a way that I would never be able to get into it as a novelist. Like they would never let me in. <laughs> they would be like, mm, you are just not Steinbeck. Even Steinbeck gets banned. I would get banned. And people are doing that work and they are brave and ferocious. I just went about it in a different, I went to a different corner of the canonical table and said, okay, maybe I can get in into the Beowulf category and cause a different analysis of toxic masculinity, a different analysis of warrior women, a different sort of gendered analysis, but also a different analysis of what it is to be good. Because that text is being close read in, you know, junior year all over America and also in university curriculums, but it's an assigned text in most of American reading. So, you know, I mean, I think the goal is always to change the world. I think part of it for me is the language, uh, not just that it's contemporary language, although you use a lot of contemporary language, which I think is wonderful. I mean, I remember reading the Odyssey. I think I read it in college, not high school. Whatever translation I have, I can still picture the cover of it because I used to fall asleep all the time while I was reading it. And I just didn't connect with the language as well um, as, as I would have if this if it had been a better translation, I think. And so I wanted to just have you talk a little bit about your your choices to use contemporary language, but also to use like beautiful and interesting language. So I have like this, I have these little sheets that I made when I was in grad school that are, I'm showing it on YouTube, I don't, people can't see it, but are like lists of cool words that I found in the dictionary. This is my page from, it's called, it's titled Body Exterior. And so on there is the word sclerite, which is a hardened body part or an exoskeleton. You use that to describe the shoulder mail of uh, Beowulf as he's be fighting uh, Grendel's mom. And, and uh, like that opportunity to use really beautiful and uncommon words has been less remarked on in the way people have been written about your um, translation, but I loved it. I wondered if you could talk about where you're getting those words from. Well, thank you. Um... That was one of the big pleasures of doing a translation like this that is as much about translation as it is about the original text. I was really interested in the uh, the, the whole corpus of translation, I guess, and the, and the long history of the English language, the ways that the language has evolved and grabbed like a magpie from everything. Um, so sclerite came in because I was like, oh, you know, I need something that that makes us feel like the armor is really part of you, that it's part of, that it's integral to your identity. And, you know, I think we have, we have lots of instances in which that's the way we discuss um, various kinds of armor, whether they're emotional kinds of armor, whether they're, uh, you know, actual real bulletproof defenses, but I thought, okay, sclerite says the armor belongs to my body. Like it's, I can't be a man without this armor. And it's interesting because Beowulf doesn't, um, he doesn't wear armor when he fights Grendel. He only wears armor when he fights Grendel's mother. He gets really armored up. He puts on his chainmail. He's like, this might be an emergency and I have to be careful. I have to get myself really dealt with. So I used a lot of language like that. I used um, I used a lot of archaic language. One of the things about Beowulf translation is that people are like, and this is this is something that I have some dispute with. People are like, okay, it has to be, it has to feel really other, or people aren't going to understand what it is, what it, where it came from. Yeah, I disagree with that. By the way, that seems like a dumb idea. I mean, it's an interesting idea. There are certainly translations that are entirely full of archaicized stuff, but the problem is that often that that work is done on things that are actually Elizabethan. <laughs> so it's like the the sort of old English culture that this is depicting is not Elizabethan. It is really, really not. It is not like, you know, Shakespeare's moment. You know, it's it's a weird, it's a weird flex to be like, and actually everyone was speaking in iambic pentameter because no, that's not, I mean, certainly everyone was also not speaking in the language and rhythms that I was, I'm using, but I'm using... 
a mixture of things. I'm using like bits of archaic stuff, bits of archaic definitions, lots of slang, but slang from the last 500 years rather than just slang from right now. Although some of it, the stuff that people talk about, I think with both hot fury and with delight is a lot of it is the stuff that I'm using from right now, which is like swole as a troll and bro and, you know, discussions of fuck and shit. Like I use a lot of I use a lot of words that people have used in different ways throughout the whole history of humans, of course, because we've always been talking about the same anger making and joy making topics. Um, but I also try to use some beautiful words that you might not have encountered very often, like seer also I use, which is S-E-R-E, which means like watertight, like really carefully constructed so that nothing leaks. And, um, you know, some of these words were joyful because they also could rhyme with the other words that I needed to use, like mirror, <laughs> which is the, um, the lake. So, yeah, I mean, it was just a pleasure. I got to shop in the entire history of the English language. Could there be anything more fun than trying to make it, trying to, to crush a really brutal, dirty, violent mead hall of a text where, like, the story is like, oh, grunt, grab, kill. But it's full of poetry. And it was such a pleasure to be able to not try to make it a noble text, not try to make it something that feels... I guess the word I want to use is highfalutin, but that's me as an Idaho. And that's like a baby Idaho. And who's like, stop keeping me out of the highfalutin text. I want in, but you know, I, I wanted to make it feel grounded in reality. I didn't, it didn't need to feel like it was off limits in my opinion to people who didn't study the entirety of Beowulf or who, who hadn't studied old English. Like, I feel like, these texts are everyone's possession. They should be, they should feel that way. Or at least in this translation, I tried to make it feel that way. And I think that that's one of the great pleasures. I was thinking of Swole as a Troll when you were saying this, because there's a sort of um, like time travelish quality to almost every sentence and that these words are not only are you using them, but they're juxtaposed with things that um, people think of as separate layers of history. And I think people talk about you know, history or sort of, right, even when we study literature, it's sort of separate into these period, like, these periods as though it's geological separation, like here's a layer, here's a layer, here's a layer. And so there's no sort of porosity between them. And here, I feel like you really explode that in a very cool way. There's this kind of like interesting conservative prudery about time. Like, you know, oh, that time is back there and it's precious. And like, we mustn't muck up how it's portrayed, you know, and, you know, like we can't possibly take 1776 and then refer to 1619. Um, you know, we can't, um, you know, we can't talk about the Civil War in, in this way and then also talk about it in that way. We can't um, think about how history affects other history. And even just on a very syntactical level, I think that the translation does such a nice job of like really exploding that. Um, and so it has this real, um, like an energy to the rhythms and to the prose that um, makes it feel propulsive. Um, I think in the introduction you say you want it to be meaty and juicy, uh, which I also really liked. Um, but yeah, I just think like that, that prudery about time, like it makes me think of like, you know, I don't know, the Confederate war monuments, um, that people have been protecting, um, or arguing about the ways that Trump has tried to push, like the way that people like the executive order, for example, and how we can talk about, um, race, uh, you know, like, oh, there can't be any scapegoats, right. The sort of, um, like you mustn't touch the history. Yeah, it's it's an amazing. I read that executive order too, and I was like, I'm sorry. There is much that hasn't been documented, but there's plenty that has been documented that we can really talk about. It's part of the history, and not only is it part of the history, but it 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 sort of impacts the way that we understand the discomfort and bonkersness of America right now. Like if we redact that information if we say we never did anything wrong we end up going why is the dragon coming for me what what is happening why is this dragon so mad and um you know i mean that's a bad position to be in if you end up wondering why there is anger if you think there shouldn't be anger because you're just good your whole history is a history of good because your history has been redacted and removed from your understanding of the life you've been living and the privileges that that have been stolen from other people so that you could live that life. It's, it results in a confused and bewildered and angry, but useless society. I just, it's a, it's such a thing. I, I think about the way 
people have talked a little bit in this uh, about this translation saying, this will not stand the test of time. <laughs> it has, the words in it are too modern and we, and they're not going to, and I'm like, come on. Like the words in the English language are evolving all the time. Slang evolves daily. And it's, um, and I don't, I don't really care if it stands the test of time. Like my goal is not like, I must have this legacy and it must live on after me. I'm using a text that's, the person who wrote it is dead really dead, so dead. And I have translated it into a book that, that we can look at right now and think about. But if in a hundred years, this book is like a crazy artifact, whatever, that's fine. I hope that it does some work right now. That's the goal. The goal is not for it to, in a thousand years, be the only one that people look at. I don't want to be the only translator that people look at. I want there to be translators who are far more diverse than I am, because I think there are perspectives that I didn't look at in this text, and there are perspectives in terms of anchoring it to the events of our society that I couldn't see from where I'm standing. So open the doors, kick this fucking doors down, and get new translations after this one that are that have perspectives that I don't have. I mean, that's the glory of a text that lives a long time and that potentially lives you know, a text that has survived and survived and survived can withstand and and continue to be interesting, um, no matter what anybody does to it, which is the glory. The, like, unpressure and all the pressure kind of thing about doing a translation of Beowulf is that people are going to look at it, but whatever, somebody else is going to translate it next year. Maria, thank you so much for joining us with this translation in this year. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to have you with us, and we encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of the translation and also to read The Mere Wife and Maria's other books. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Our producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. That's all, folks. Stay safe out there. We'll see you on the other side of this endless presidential campaign.